0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: HRN has a brand new look, but we're sharing the same delicious stories. Invest in the future of Food Radio by becoming a monthly sustaining member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Today, I'm speaking with Mesa Chahada, founder and CEO of Behave, the low sugar gummy bears made with better for you, all natural ingredients and elevated flavors. Mesa recruited Chef Elizabeth Faulkner to test over 100 flavor recipes in a kitchen before landing on their lineup, then launched, then took customer feedback to come back with an even better product with a stronger nutritional profile. Today Behave is available directly online and at a growing list of retailers, including Air One Market as of last week. Congratulations.
2: Thank you, thanks so much for having me.
1: Yeah, welcome, welcome. Um, I'm happy you're here. I've been, I think we connected last summer Mm -hmm. um, and I've been sort of following and loving um, from afar. So I'm, I'm thrilled that you're, you know, talking to me today. Um, and I guess I just wanted to start with, you know, sometimes I start with, you know, you were born and, you know, all that. But I think there's actually a lot of really fun, very specific stuff that people can learn from the way that I've watched you iterate, um, which I think is kind of this, I don't know, your secret sauce, maybe a little bit. Um, So I guess I just want to start off with, you know, marketing. You were in marketing, you were in partnerships and biz dev. Um, Tell me a little bit about that and then why you left to make candy.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so I started my career uh, at the NFL and I've just been really lucky, honestly, to, to get opportunities at um, a handful of really strong consumer brands. So, um, yeah, first job out of college was at the NFL. I worked in a number of sort of uh, different business development roles and uh, roles focused on the international side of the business there. Um, then I was at Uber, obviously now a, a huge kind of global <laughs> brand um, that you you know you may have heard of. Um, after leaving Uber, I went to Daily Harvest, which at the time was still pretty kind of new, um, mm-hmm. but obviously now I think has become, um, you know, pretty much a household name here in the U.S. and and just such a, a huge brand and, and an and amazing product within the health food space. And then ultimately I left Daily Harvest and I joined SoulCycle. So, um, you know, I, I think the beauty of having worked across all these different companies is that they were all at very different stages. They were all run and operated very differently, you know, the NFL, a hundreds Mm -hmm. of year old legacy kind of heritage brand to Uber, you know, extremely well financed um, global kind of startup to Daily Harvest, which was really more like on the small and scrappy startup side of things when I joined. Um, So got to see a lot of different businesses at a lot of different stages and, and really Um, And I think working within partnerships is is something that I now in hindsight feel really glad was was kind of the route that I took from a career perspective because you ultimately become the person within the company or, you know, one of a a team of people that is out in the world, kind Mm -hmm. of selling your brand to other potential partners, to customers in a lot of ways. Um, you're putting together marketing activations and campaigns that you think are going to resonate with the consumer. And so you have to understand your brand in and out. You have to understand the partner's brand in and out. What are they looking for? What are what are their business objectives that they're trying to achieve by coming into some kind of partnership or collaboration? And you have to understand both your consumer and the partner's consumer. Mm-hmm. So I think just working in that space really did, w- without me even knowing it or without it having been intentional at the time, but it really did... Um, Kind of put me in these positions where i really sort of felt that i was almost pitching the the brands that i work at and yeah uber the nfl some of these are, are massive businesses it's not that anyone didn't know who we were but you're you're still having to kind of build that story around um why a partnership should exist or why a marketing campaign or activation or event um should exist and and why there's going to be an roi on that and i think that really helped um kind of set the foundation for ultimately you know, leaving those roles to to start a company.
1: Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, I want to talk about partnerships, especially after the break, because we love them. Like as a company, we love them and we love them in like all sorts of weird ways, up and down and over to the side and over to a (laughs) random category that doesn't seem like it makes sense for us. But um, I think think it's a huge part of our business. And I'd love some sort of big thinking from you on, you know, when we get there, but how did you, were you, did you think maybe at some point you wanted to start your own thing or were you like cruising along and then you were like, you know, scob smacked with like this, there, there is no gummy that I can eat. I mean, what, how did, how did the germ happen and then how did it turn into a plant?
2: Yeah, totally. I I would say that Um, I definitely had some kind of inclination towards sort of like entrepreneurship. I always found that I excelled the most in roles where I had a lot of autonomy, a lot of ownership, a lot of like trust between me and my manager and my team to where I really felt that freedom to kind of like run with my own ideas and my own, um, projects and campaigns. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, that sort of lends itself a little bit, I think to a personality type that, you know maybe would want to start something or, or you know, again, just, just really loving autonomy. And whereas I think for some people, like having a little more guidance or having a little more structure in a role makes more sense. Mm-hmm. I always felt that like too much structure really stifled me. So, you know, I, I think it was something that I thought, of, thought about and I definitely had had kind of other, you know, little startup ideas here and there um, along the way, but nothing that really stuck. And I would not, ne- I would say I was never that person that was like, sitting at a whiteboard saying, okay, I need to start a company within the next 12 months. Let me write all these ideas down. It was more like things would come to me. I would do a little research and, you know, I guess none of them really went anywhere. Ultimately
1: decide no. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Or, or
2: like, I just wasn't passionate enough about it to really pick it up and run with it. But ultimately I, um, you know, landed on candy to, to your point, really just out of, and I know this is like such an age old story for, for founders, but really just out of a personal need and a personal desire for this type of product in that I am such a sweet tooth. I love um, like candy and sweets and unfortunately like a lot of sugar filled products Um, Mm -hmm. just kind of that like I grew grew up in the 90s so I think just very like 90s nostalgic of the some of the stuff that we unfortunately Mm -hmm. were eating growing up. Um, I'm really like keen on a lot of those types of products but as I was getting older um, just trying to kind of clean up my own diet. and. Um, eat cleaner, eat less processed foods, um, you know, cut back on sugar, uh, and o- honestly, like obviously partially kind of health related, a-, a lot of it also sort of mental health related, like I was mm-hmm. finding that if I ate, if I had a ton of sugar, like that could cause, um, that could definitely lead to like almost some anxiety, like a sugar crash, like pretty bad mm-hmm. headaches. Um, and so, you know, all of that combined really led me to just rethinking a bit what I was eating and um, I was finding so many great alternatives in a lot of different categories, a lot of different parts of the grocery store, but ultimately candy was that one kind of indulgence that I love um, that I couldn't find a good alternative in. So I think that was a little bit like the early light bulb moment. Um, right. Probably had that early thought around it. A couple years ago, I, I was working at Daily Harvest at the time. Um, and I did take I, I did sort of dig into it, did some research at the time. It, it didn't really materialize any further than that. But what I would say is that it was just like, to the point of there had been business ideas before that didn't go anywhere. Like this was the one that just kept.
1: Right. Coming back.
2: Yeah, exactly. It stuck with me. Anytime I walked into a store, a a bodega, an airport, I would check the candy section. I mean, for one, just because I I buy candy for myself, but then Mm kind of having had this thought, like, why isn't there better for you candy? I would pay really close attention to everything in the aisle, everything on the shelf, of any store that I was walking into and really realized even as a couple years had passed um there had still been little to no innovation in the category and um as I kept digging into it you know did more research kept asking around and learning more about the space uh really realizing that there had been almost no innovation in the category in really like decades if not even yeah. centuries um so that was ultimately like yeah as, as I just couldn't shake the idea I ultimately kind of thought um you know, okay, well, what would it look like for, for me to actually try to create a product like this? And and how would I go about that?
1: Well, it's interesting, right? Because you were very much, I mean, I think, I don't know what I like about like your story is that, yes, you know, I mean, there's a lot of data around, especially women founders, women do tend to create the products that we wish we had, Um, you know, just, you know, not that it's like totally gendered, but there is there is some research around that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, you know, you also had your market research cap on, you know, like mm-hmm. you were, and I think, you know, part of what I'm trying to do with this podcast is I don't ever want to dampen people's dreams or, you know, to, to be like, oh, don't do this, you know. But <laughs> I do think that there... There's a way to be an idealistic, you know, almost like we all are super optimistic, knowing the numbers, knowing how many Mm. companies don't make it. Um, There is research that you can do that does not cost money. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what you did. You went to when you were at airports, you looked at the set, you know, you you knew that there was a there was a place to buy candy. And you kept looking to see if there were new players there that made sense. And that's 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 market research, right? I mean, I'm sure you did other things too. Um, But I just think it's like a really, it's like you went in with your heart, but you also used your brain,
0: Um, which I think
1: is is pretty cool. And I mean, my guess is like around the time you were looking, chocolate definitely started getting the treatment. Mm-hmm. right? Like there were all of these sugar-free and, you know, no crap and all that stuff, chocolates popping up all over the place. I could imagine that you were like, wait, this is happening right next door, but it's not happening like right here. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and I think I I, I love how you kind of like worded that thinking around um, like what I would almost call like the idea validation stage where Mm -hmm. it does have to be a mix of art and science. And, you know, another question we get a lot is how did you decide to start with gummies? Did you ever, you know, did we ever consider starting with chocolate? And you're exactly right. I think that there has been there's just always been more variety in the chocolate category i mean chocolate Mm -hmm. is is a bigger it's a bigger size market so there's also you know more space for more players maybe um i mean there's space for so many players in in every category in food and beverage thankfully but um i think the other thing about chocolate is if you really want to go clean with chocolate you can always just get something that's super dark Mm -hmm. um that's not going to be full of sugar so we sort of felt that in the chocolate category there were some alternatives that were definitely cleaner, you know, clean source, fair trade, that were, you know, right. brands that were putting a lot of thought into how they're making chocolate in a way that's sustainable, in a way that considers everyone along the supply chain. Um, and that's just not something that you were really seeing in non-chocolate in the non-chocolate category. So, right. um, and, and yeah, I think to your point around like, um, j- sorry not to jump around, but to go back yeah, for no. a second around jump. like, wh- yeah, <laughs> like how do you kind of validate that idea, right? To your point, like, I, I like eating candy. I felt like there wasn't a good alternative. Okay. So you have some inclination of something that maybe, you know, it's, it's a personal need and maybe other people would have the same need and the same experience. Um, but to your point, how do you go about validating that there's a market opportunity without spending a ton of money on, um, you know, research and, and, you know, you can spend years and years. I think there has to be some balance between answering and validating your hypotheses when, whenever you're starting a business and just moving and just getting yep. started and just going. And so right. I would say we definitely did like a combination of all those things, right? On the one hand, it was the intuition and just the sort of anecdotal, like, you know, I, I think this is a product I would like. I, I, am asking all, anyone that I run into like, Hey, is this mm-hmm. something that you would eat, would buy? Um, I think at
1: one point I, I put together a survey. In yeah, Google I form. took that survey. Yeah. That, yeah. Because I, whenever I think of you, that's kind of what I was saying at the beginning. Yeah. Like I, I'm always thinking like, and I don't know if this is just like your marketing experience, but you know, so many founders and myself included, you know, I'm guilty of it too. Like these are our babies. right? So, you know, when we hear like I, I would like it a little saltier. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. please, you right, can just right. add salt, you know, like, <laughs> right. and it's hard. It's hard to, it's hard. You, you were open to feedback from the get-go. Like mm-hmm. you were, you were using it in a way. And I mean, I just, I feel like that's been like your whole ride yeah. a little bit, you know, which yeah, is just, it's, it's cool and it's admirable and it's not that common. I don't thank think. Thank Yeah.
2: Yeah. thank you yeah i mean i yeah and, and i would say we, we've taken in a lot of feedback on the product itself um but even like even prior to that before i even knew before i even knew if this was going to be you know chocolates or non-chocolates or anything we we i put out a survey and a couple i think i posted in a few facebook groups we probably got a mm-hmm. few hundred responses um just on very high level like would What makes you buy a candy? What types right. of candy do you eat? What brands do you love? What formats do you love? What flavors do you love? A really, really high-level survey that I really weeded through every single response and just said, you know, and obviously some questions around, like, what's important to you? Reduced mm-hmm. sugar, arti- no artificial ingredients, things right. like that. And it really did help for one, I think validate a lot of the ideas that I already had, but then also shape some of, um, some of the things that we ultimately brought into the brand that maybe we wouldn't have otherwise. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I definitely hear, I definitely know the feeling of this is your baby and, um, it can be so hard, especially, you know, for us, like we don't, we don't send, um, an ingredient list to a laboratory or to a manufacturer and have them send us back a sample. And then you're kind of detached, right? Like we have, mm-hmm. um, you know, Elizabeth Faulkner, who's a celebrity chef is on our team. We are literally in the kitchen, um, testing out flavors. Like, I mean, now, now that we're all over the country since the pandemic, we're like shipping little Ziploc bags of dummies, <laughs> you know, all over the country. So it, we're so hands-on. Yeah. So I yeah. can know the, the worry of like, taking things personally. But I I think at the end of the day, you know, you have to be able to separate your, I I, I don't know. I like, it's so, I know that it's easier said than done, but the more that you can, the more that you can understand that customer feedback is ultimately what is going to get you to Mm -hmm. be successful. The sooner I think that you can kind of detach from that like personal attachment to a product or a flavor. And there's sort of two sides of the coin, right? There's, asking for feedback and receiving like 75% of respondents think one thing and it's different than what I thought. But now I really need to dig into this and, and see, you know, is this just a a personally held opinion that I need to revisit? Mm -hmm. Um, or alternatively, is it like half of the people like to your point, I I, am assuming like if you're making a sauce, like half of people want it saltier, half of people want it less salty. So, (laughs) so we're going to go with what I want. Right. Right. (laughs) um, And and so it it ends up being a combination of those things. And sometimes you really do just have to, I think for one, trust your own instinct because you know, we, um, we created these brands out of again, like personal needs. So to some extent I do, I relate so much to our target demo and to our target consumer. So sometimes I, I really do want to just have that confidence to say, we you know we're not we don't have six months to like test this out and iterate on this so we need to right. make a decision obviously everyone on the team involved but like how do we get to a decision quickly right. um, and, and so you know I, I think balancing that with really being able to get into the weeds and, and dig in with your consumers and with sort of everyone around you um, and and make sure that you're always getting to kind of the best final decision.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's great. It's it's been obvious from from afar for me at least. Um, oh, okay, so when you were thinking about it and you were like, okay, I'm gonna do this. I you sent that thing. People want candy that's better for you. What did that? What did engaging the chef look like? How did you did you start right away? What what were sort of the um, I guess what was easier. And what was harder in sort of getting ready to launch than, than you thought it would be Mm. like, what were the surprises?
2: Um, yeah. So quickly on, uh, working with Elizabeth. So we, again, I sort of had had this idea. I, I sort of sat with it for a while. And then ultimately when something clicked and I was like, Okay, let me, like, step one, let me see if I can make this product, right? Like, mm-hmm. not, you know, having a good idea or having an idea you think is good doesn't matter, ultimately, if you can't make a, a good product to to kind of fulfill, like, this right. the value props that we wanted to go for, which was um, a product that's low in sugar, doesn't use anything artificial, no artificial sweeteners or sugar alcohols, but still tastes delicious. And I felt if we can't create a product that hits all three of these things, then, like, Don't there's nowhere that. to go. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I start, I actually started off by engaging some like product R and D firms and chatting with a bunch of them, um, and really sort of got this understanding of how a lot of not, and I don't want to say all, but a lot of these firms, how they work is especially in candy, because there is a lot of kind of food science that goes into like making a gummy, making a gel, Mm -hmm. making it set, making the flavor come through. It's not like, it's not like baking or some things that maybe are a little bit more, um, there's a little more art than science to them. Um, So a lot of the firms we were talking to, you know, I would say the philosophy and the way they operate is very much, okay, tell us your parameters, right? So for us, low sugar, no artificial ingredients, and obviously tastes amazing. Um, Tell us what your parameters are, send us maybe if there's must have ingredients or like banned ingredients that you would absolutely not use. Um, And then they almost like go into Excel before anything Mm -hmm. else and like map out what they believe the formula can look like um in order to achieve all of your objectives and you know there was just something about that where i was like okay we we may achieve the low sugar we may achieve no artificial ingredients but like we're not even going to run a sample of this product until we've gone through 3 4 5 iterations in an excel spreadsheet and that just didn't feel like making food to me and definitely mm-hmm. not making good food mm-hmm. um and so again i engaged a number of these firms but ultimately i i had a thought which was like why don't I see if I can team up with a chef um, who's really passionate about what um, what we want to do here who is excited about this idea and this concept um, and who understands sweets the sweet space so I was particularly kind of looking into uh, chefs with pastry backgrounds mm-hmm. um, and yeah and decided to just reach out to a handful of chefs um, I wanted to work with a female chef uh, and ultimately, Spoke with a, with a couple of um, kind of chefs in, with pastry backgrounds. But Elizabeth and I connected really early on off of a, a cold email. I think I emailed like mm-hmm. it was probably like info at elizabethfalkner.com or something <laughs> off mm-hmm. her website. But um, heard back really quickly. I think within like a day, we had a phone call. Within a day from that, there, two days, we got coffee. And it was one of those where right. we just really clicked on a personal level. She really resonated with the concept and the idea. And she just had such a go-getter mentality. I mean, that's a, that's why she's been so successful in her career in general. Um, but Elizabeth really is just that personality of like, we can absolutely make this happen. She's like, she's so easygoing and fun to work with, but she also has a competitive side and, you know, not in like a mean or nasty way, at all, but just like, we will absolutely make this product. We will make the best tasting product in the market. And, um, and, go. and we, yeah. And, and we yeah. were li- literally off to the races. I would say from like those first meetings, once we just kind of tied up, like how we were going to, you know, work together. Right. Um, we, and was we, that yeah.
1: tricky? I mean, I, you know, I asked that because I know, you know, a lot of times, you know, I just know a lot of chefs that do work with brands and brands that do work with chefs and people have different ways of structuring that. Yeah. And, um, but was it, you know, was that a, were there any surprises you know, I, there, or
2: I, I think, and 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 I I kind of knew going into the like the approach of of reaching out to celebrity chefs. I knew how challenging structuring those partnerships and agreements can be. I'd actually, right. I do I, I, know. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been involved in managing some like celebrity investors and celebrity ambassadors at, um, some of the brands that I've worked at previously. And mm-hmm. I, I know that sometimes they can go so easily and so smoothly. And sometimes it can just be literally months and months of back and forth legal paperwork, everything. Mm-hmm. And so And what I knew, having worked on these type of deals in the past, is that the ones that go smoothly are the ones where the celebrity or the person involved is just extremely bought into the idea. They are a fan of the product or a fan of the idea Um, in many cases, like maybe they even reached out to the brand wanting to work with them versus Mm -hmm. the other way around. Um, Obviously, I reached out to Elizabeth, but I think something that was so important for us being able to just have worked together so seamlessly from the start is that she is so bought into the idea, and she is such a, um, she is such a like, um, you know, genuine and authentic um, part of our team, and someone who really stands behind everything that we are creating and putting out into the world. You know she did, and and there were other chefs that I spoke with in that exploration phase that were mm-hmm. like, okay, seeing um, and my agent here is right. my here are my rates, right? Um, you know, let me know if you want to do something, and and that was never the I, I think with Elizabeth she just something piqued her interest with, um, with this conceptually, and so that has just made the whole process um go very seamlessly and you know we, we did like a combination cash and equity um you know structure of for for the deal and and so you know we i, I think in addition to just having a good understanding of how we want to work together obviously elizabeth's also a, an owner and a partner in the business and and right. that's that was always important to me um whether i think whether she had asked for that or not i forget who kind of brought it up first but um Making sure that you know okay. she's she's going to be involved with us for for the long run and, well, and it, feel that investment level.
1: It goes back to what you said at the very beginning about how having that like role in partnerships is, is such a like foundation of your career. Mm-hmm. Really did mean a lot in this you know case because you weren't just understanding your brand and your objectives, but you were understanding hers and she did the same, um, which is very cool. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back, we're gonna hear everything about launching and post-launch and COVID and all of it. HRN is excited to unveil the new look of food radio. We have a new brand identity and a new website. Our site makes it easier than ever to discover new podcasts and dig through an archive of 16,000 episodes. It's been 12 years since HRN started broadcasting food radio and we've made it this far thanks to the support of our global listening community. It's because of member donations that In The Sauce is on the air along with 40 other weekly shows. Your contributions gave HRN the security we needed to stay on the airwaves during the pandemic and are allowing us to reopen our studio. Becoming a monthly sustaining member of HRN shows me how much in the sauce and food radio means to you. At HRN, we're investing in the future of food radio. To do the same, become a monthly sustaining member of HRN. When you do, you'll get access to our very special secret menu. We've gathered exclusive discounts and offers from some of our favorite food and beverage brands. Enjoy insider pricing on goods that will ship right to your door. Join our community of monthly donors. Special deals will come your way throughout the summer. A gift of five or $10 a month gives our community the consistent stability it needs to keep the voice of America's food movement alive and thriving. Become a monthly sustaining member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. I'm back with Mesa Chahada, founder and CEO of Behave. Okay. So you you go through a hundred recipes, you find one you're like hugging in the test kitchen. It's like Eureka. That's my impression of it. Tell me what really happened. And then how did you get from that to being, you know, available for people to buy?
2: Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's always a journey and I think it, you know, the, the lesson is definitely that, um, these things, especially with food and physical product, I think probably in a way that I didn't Fully anticipate just take longer than you expect. You're dealing yeah. with raw materials. You're dealing with factories, manufacturers. Um, you know, we were manufacturing um, in Canada at the beginning. So import, mm-hmm. uh, legal, you know, all branding, design, everything. Yeah. It, it all takes longer than you expect. I think I also, um, yeah, it, it, it's it's just a process. So, um, but, you know, I, I think there's so much... Fun that comes with that pre-launch phase of the business. So as as yeah. much as I, um, as much as I know, there there were a lot of stresses and a lot of challenges. I always look back on that time so fondly because it's basically this a really exciting time where you're extracting like what almost feels like a dream in your mind. Like you can't yes. t- I, I, like it's almost a little bit foggy and a little cloudy, and I can't always describe <laughs> it to people fully, um, mm-hmm. and I can't always find the right words. And but it's slowly but surely kind of like becomes this really clear picture through the help of, um, you know, the branding partner that we worked with to build the brand, through the help of, you know, Elizabeth and everyone on the R&D side of of creating the product, through the help sometimes of, you know, a dinner conversation with a friend where you're talking about and you're trying to articulate something and they're like, they're like, oh, so you mean... Um. This, this, and this, and you're like, okay, yes. Let me write this down in my notes out. Right. Exactly. exactly what I've been trying to put down. On Those are the words. For, like, yes. Exactly. Exactly. By so, the way, it's
1: been three years for me, and I'm right. still like, wait, what did you just say? Fresh convenience? Like what? Yes, you yes. know. And, you know. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna write that down.
2: Oh, I definitely. Um, oh, yeah, I definitely owe some friends like uh, uh, royalty on like some of the taglines we use, some of the copy we use. I think even right. the name behave um, came from a conversation with with a friend really, really early on. So. Um, yeah, forever grateful for those people who were just, you know, those late night dinners that turn yeah. into amazing copywriting sessions in a way. Um, <laughs> did you
1: know that you were going to launch D2C first? <coughs> like, I'm always curious about, I mean, or did you? I mean, or, you know, was that the plan? And is that what ended up happening? I'm just, yeah, you know, digitally so our- native companies are are so different to me, you know, from yes. what my
2: experience was totally so the intention had always been to launch direct to consumer and i think you know that decision had co- originated from for one frankly my background is in sort of the tech and the ecom world so i felt that i mm-hmm. have you know i'll never claim to know any everything about everything or really anything about anything but i felt more <laughs> comfortable in the ecom and the d2c space just having been at a big d2c food startup previously at Daily Harvest. And, um, you know, a lot of just the marketing and and things that I had done in my career were very digitally native. So I think there was a comfort level there. And then obviously what comes with that is almost admittedly like a discomfort level with retail, right? Having never really been in a business that was... And it's such a
1: weird behemoth of a... Yeah. I mean, like... We'll, oh, we'll get I, into that, Yeah, too. I,
2: yeah. I, know, I, I heard the word distributor for the first time, I think, like, a few months into, you know, right. working on this. and talk, like I, I, So this is all very new to me, the retail front. Right. Um, so, yeah, that, that was sort of driving some of the decision to launch online. I think also having seen from working at Daily Harvest and from a lot of conversations with um, food found, founders in the food and beverage space, especially sort of like these modern um, food uh, CPG brands, really seeing how um how much building that community online can do mm-hmm. for your business in the long run. So strategically mm-hmm. that was another that was another thing that felt that it could work really well for us and, and ultimately I'm really glad it's the approach we took because it did it really has served us, which was Let's launch online. Let's own that direct relationship with our consumer all the way mm-hmm. through um, where we can be in direct communication with anybody who's buying our product because it's only available on our website. Yep. Um, and let's create that open dialogue with our community. Let's build the community. Let's build sort of like the buzz around our brand and, and create something that people are excited to be a part of in the online space where um, we just we can talk to people directly um, before we sort of go into retail, because then by the time we hit the shelf at retail, people have heard of us. They're excited about us. You know, and we have people that are kind of waiting for us to come to a store in in their town. We have people that are walking into stores asking like, oh, do you carry behave? And then the buyers from those stores are emailing us. Mm -hmm. Um, So it has really created this, this environment that's made it much um, much easier, I think, to uh, to start building now our retail strategy, you know, a little under a year since launching. We're now um, really starting to to build out uh, the retail side of the business. The, the reality is that COVID did shift our strategy slightly. I think the initial strategy had been to launch D2C, but probably uh, also launch with a handful of, of retail partners, um, really focused in on New York and L.A. That was the original plan. Um, I would say with the pandemic, with people's kind of shopping and um, going out in public habits obviously so heavily impacted at the time when we launched, which was August of last year, August 2020, um, we ultimately decided to basically launch uh, purely D2C. Right. Uh, we did a few little concept stores and pop-up shops here and there uh, after launching, but uh, it w- those were really one- rare occasional one-offs, um, and I would say it's pretty much now, you know, as of our launch into Erewhon last week and we're launching into a few other really exciting retailers in the coming week or two. Um, we have Foxtrot uh, in Chicago, mm-hmm. Dallas and D.C. as well as Harmons in Salt Lake City um, love coming on. Okay. Yeah, coming coming on with us. So we've been very selective about where we go in in the early days um, and we've been lucky to find some really amazing partners to to kind of um, yeah. get into retail
1: with. It seems to me, I mean, you know, this might sound really just like dumb and obvious, but it does seem to me like if you are a shelf-stable, lightweight brand, you, you why wouldn't you launch directly, get your bearings, get to know your consumer, iterate the way that you did, figure some stuff out, figure out your messaging, build up that community? You know, I guess for us, it was just like a non-starter because, yeah, you know, we were fresh and I didn't even, I mean, it did not occur to me, like, that this would be something people would buy on the internet. Yeah. Um, that has since changed, but you know, it, th- I mean, that makes sense. And then I guess one of the questions I have that I've been thinking about a lot with like a lot of brands that launched that had incredible launches. Like you came out of the gate It's cool, it's fresh, it's like, it's got a point of view, the branding is amazing. You clearly know your way around like building a community, which is really uh, awesome. I'm curious about like second semester freshman year type of thing. (laughs) Like, what, what happened after the launch? Like, what, again, what was sort of according to plan and what was kind of like, huh? This this is something I didn't exactly count on or were were there surprises? Yeah,
2: you know, I I think it's it's such an interesting question and you know, I can only really speak to our experience which maybe was also odd in its own way because we pretty much as soon as we launched, we realized that we were going to stock out of product. Um right. and due to, you know, a number of factors, obviously, um pandemic has impacted uh, a lot of supply chains just all over the world when it comes to ingredients and manufacturing. We knew we were gonna stock out, but we still had a really long wait time before we were gonna be able to manufacture again, just due to a number of factors with our, with our manufacturer. So right. um, we were- So did put, that
1: scare you? I mean, I get, cause when, when we're out of stock, people are like, that's amazing. And I'm like, it's not
2: amazing. (laughs) It's like, it
1: like really bums me out. But I mean, I guess maybe there's like a waitlist thing and it's cool. And you can be like, we sold out and have a waiting list. Like, is that, is that how you really felt? Or were you like bummed? Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm (laughs) completely, I'm completely with you. Believe me.
2: If if we can't, if we can't like serve our community and give people the product that they are coming to us seeking, um, I'm bummed for sure. And so, um, you know, we, yeah, we were not excited about about <laughs> stocking out. But what I will say is that what stocking out did do, and we were stocked out for a solid, um, I believe it was about six weeks in the end. So it was a long stock out. It was it was definitely tough. Um, you know, just from yeah, we to your point, we built a lot of momentum in the launch, um, and people were really excited. And then we had to kind of put up that um, you know. Huh. Coming soon. Yeah, right. join our join our yeah. waitlist message on the website. And it's, it, it does just suck when you have people coming to the website seeking you out and, and really right. excited about your product that, um, you you know, you have to tell them that, that there's going to be a wait. And
1: so... Yeah, and I'm what, scared they're going to forget, you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm right. I'm scared they're going to forget.
2: So, yeah. but what we did do, I think what we did do really effectively as a team is we built up, um, we built up a really strong waitlist uh, during that time and people... When, you know, when we did come back in stock, people had been really anticipating uh, us coming back, and so we really saw a lot of people off that wait list just super excited, converting um, once we were back in stock. And then I think the other thing that having that stock out did was it really gave us time to just turn internally and really ask ourselves like, who are we as a business? What do we want to accomplish? Um, what do we want to be to our consumers you know and and takes so, take a little bit of time when mm-hmm. things were a little bit slowed down because we were kind of in a in a bit oh of a waiting God. yeah a little bit of a mm-hmm. holding pattern on the manufacturing front um, and then you know the other thing and, and I think you may have alluded to this earlier is that we did take in customer feedback almost immediately after we launched as soon as people started receiving their products you know we have reviews coming in we have um, customers writing in, we're engaging with cu- customers through social media, just in the comments of our Instagram posts and in DMs. Um, and we got some really early feedback that, frankly, I think if we didn't have that stock out risk, maybe we would have just kept moving mm-hmm. forward because we would have just got into this loop of like, you know, okay, we just need to keep making more and more product. We right. need to just keep keeping up with demand. But because we knew we were going to have this down period, we were able to really pause and say, okay, if we were to make some updates to our product and to our ref, to our formula, what would they look like? Um, what would it mean? Like, what, what are people saying is are the most important things to them when it comes to the product, how can we address those? And so ultimately we were able to make some adjustments to our formula, um, that ended us up with, um, improved, uh, nutritional macros. You, you know, we went from three grams of sugar in each bag down to one. Um, yeah. we went from 90 calories down to 80 and actually we just made, um, another slight change that's taking us down to 60 calories per bag. Um, so, and then I think the other thing that that did was it really showed that community that we were building online, that we were listening to them. You, were listening. you know, yep. I think every brand says we're listening to you, but like our, you know, how, um, how I mean, how how feasible is it for brands to listen to everyone? And the reality is that at our stage of business, this is really the stage when we can actually like. Yep. I'm reading every single email, every every point of communication that a customer has coming into our brand. I'm reading it, um, yep. and and pretty much our whole team is. And so. Um, you know that that's not that's not true at every stage of business, so we really wanted to capitalize on that opportunity um but yes, I'm definitely with you that you know and the stock out is it's almost dually tough because everyone is almost congratulating you and and, I, and right. you're sitting there like you're sitting there like, uh, do you know anyone who can who can make this for us sooner right. like
1: we're we're trying to get back in stock so right. um but I but, love that and again it goes back to like your just the way that you built it. I mean, in a way it was, it was great, right? Like you, you were able to take that time and do that reflecting that you just don't do when you're on like sheer momentum. You knew that you had something, you knew that people were engaged and then you kind of took stock, Um, which I think is really cool. And I think, unfortunately, you know, I remember having this conversation with our whole foods buyer literally in 2018, I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and everyone at Whole Foods, you know, everyone wants to like launch globally. Everyone mm-hmm. wants to go big, you know, yeah. everything is sort of like supersized. Um, the problem is, is that if there's a problem, then right. you've then messed it's also up in, supersized. In, in 500 stores. Exactly. Yeah. And then you have to go back and apologize to every regional buyer and, you know, do, do a whole thing. And like, uh, even if there isn't a problem or like a, you know, a glaring issue, there just, there are, there are tweaks. There are things that you think are going to be super important that the consumer doesn't care mm-hmm. as much about. And there are things that you don't realize they really care about or just like even something as simple as sauce. I didn't realize how much we needed to explain what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never, I was like, what do you mean? You squeeze it like on a thing. Like I literally, am still a little confused as to, why we have to do so much explaining. But, mm-hmm. you know, whenever you're creating something new, you know, like there's there's consumer education. And I think yeah. that when you try absolutely. to do that, like too big, too fast, too hard, which is yeah. unfortunately what happens when you take in a bunch of money and they need to yeah. see, you know, scale fast. Um, you know, there's pressure on founders, you mm-hmm. know? Definitely. Um, yeah, okay, Go back to the partnerships. So, you know, we always talk about our secret sauce, which is that um, we love to partner. (laughs) We Mm -hmm. love, and the fun thing about being like a vegan gluten-free condiment is that you can put us on steak, you can Mm -hmm. put us on tofu, you can put us on cauliflower. Like, we don't care. We're just happy (laughs) to be there. And, you know, sometimes we'll do random Things outside of our category, because I think someone said it right. Oh, it was it was Analea from uh, Social Nature a couple weeks ago. She was saying like marketing according to behavior as opposed to marketing according to demographic. Yes, and absolutely, yeah. And I think that that's exactly what partnerships are speaking to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious about your thoughts, just about you know, are you doing them now? you know, some brands when they're early, they don't like to, cause they feel like it dilutes them. I don't feel that way, but I'm curious your thoughts. But also um, you were talking about, you know, kind of proving out an ROI. And I will say that that is the harder part mm-hmm. for us. Yeah. You know, did we, did we build brand awareness? I think so. Did we get a few more emails on our list? Yeah. yeah. But like, How do you think about the ROI in a partnership or is it just, you know,
2: I think also at this stage, yeah, I I think at this stage of the business too, like just to answer the ROI question first and then maybe dig into some of the other stuff is that um, some of the ROIs, like, you'll never be able to uh, put it into like a chart or an Excel spreadsheet or your financial model. But you know, we had um, who was it? We had a buyer, from a, uh, from like a prominent hotel chain, reach out to us and they mm-hmm. said, oh, we saw that you were doing, um, I, I follow Onda. Onda is, a uh, ready to drink tequila cocktail, canned tequila cocktail. we did a partnership with, uh, maybe two weeks ago and she saw us on that through their Instagram mm-hmm. and then she started following us. And then she was like, we have to get you guys into our hotels. Right. So, right. you know, some, and especially at this stage of the business, obviously, um, you know, at a certain scale, you you definitely are going to want to be able to maybe get a little bit more dollar and cents with say with things. But um, you know, for us, even just being able to be on more people's radars, even just mm-hmm. being able to have aligned with brands that, to your point, feel very aligned with us from like a brand values and and uh, um, you know that that they're speaking to a similar uh, customer. And to your point, that doesn't always mean demo, but really like from a yeah behavior and. Uh, like psychographic perspective. Um, and just, yeah, some, there's credibility too that comes when you're, when you're a young star, um, startup that no one's heard of when someone's, right. you know, maybe someone even has heard of us, maybe they're not hearing about us for the first time, but when they see that we've partnered with another brand that they really trust or another brand that they really love um, that may sort of shift or, um, you know, yeah, benefit it, the like way views. that they view us. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, I mean, look, my, my, my career background has always been in partnerships. I would say, you know, running, um, it, it's, are definitely considerations that you just want to keep in mind though, to your point when you're super early, I, I do think that there can be, um, partnership fatigue. I think that that is a thing, um, right. when, you know, a young brand comes out the gate, They do too many partnerships. They sort of start, yes, you know, you you don't want to get to a point where you're ever like spamming your your community via email or SMS or even on social media. Um, And you you really want to make sure that um, you're always, everything that you do, whether it's a partnership, whether it's a marketing campaign, whether it's a... Um, an email that you're sending is bringing some kind of value to the consumer. So for us with partnerships, we always ask ourselves, like, are these brands that our community will be excited to either learn about or to see that we're working with? Um, And, you know, is whatever the kind of ask from the community, whether it's, you know, for a giveaway to follow and and subscribe or, um, you know, to engage in some way, like to, leave a comment for some kind of, you know, whatever we're asking the community to do um, or whatever we're offering to them through the partnership. Is it value add? Is it something that um, obviously, you you know, you'll never do something probably that's going to excite everyone, but is it going right. to excite like the vast majority of our community? Um, so that's the lens we look through and yeah, you know, that's I, a
1: great way to think about it.
2: Yeah, And I, I think the other thing too, is like, you know, we would love to be doing more and so, so sorry, on the, on the one hand, I would say you have sort of the smaller scale partnerships, which are maybe social media based giveaways, co-gifting to influencers, things like that you can do with other brands. Then mm-hmm. there's sort of like the much bigger kind of these like 360 degree partnerships. Right. Um, so, you know, I, we definitely would love to put out like a a product in collaboration with um, a personality or another brand. It's something that we've had so many discussions around, but the truth is that, that at our stage of the business from a supply chain perspective, it's very challenging to, um, you know, the minimum orders are so high. Are we willing to order such a large quantity of something that's going to, you know, only be running for a short amount of time or a limited Mm -hmm. edition? Um, And so much R&D and so much time and effort gets put into every single product and every single flavor that we put into the market. So that's another question is like, how much can we invest Sometimes it's not even about money invested. It's about time, especially when you're such a small team. And what are we really getting back from that? So that's definitely something we've been thinking a lot about. I think it's something we'll do at some point. But we have to also understand that the ROI is not always going to be pure dollar based. It's also Mm going to be, you know, I think at, at our stage of business, you have to be thinking about the halo that you're building around your brand and make sure that, you know, you are that we're also open to. To employing marketing tactics and strategies that maybe are not always going to be, we spent one dollar, we made five dollars. But maybe mm-hmm. sometimes we spend one dollar, we make two dollars, which is still great. Um, yeah. We'll we'll never spend a dollar to make you know fifty cents, right? But if we spend a dollar, we make a dollar fifty, two dollars. But we've also had a significant impact on our brand reach awareness and, um, perception, you know, and obviously speak of things you can't measure perception. You definitely can't measure. Frankly, the way that I sometimes measure that is we'll do a partnership. And then just for a few weeks after, like, you know, people I'm hearing from investors, I'm hearing from, um, you know, retailers, people are reaching out. We're, we're feeling like a little bit more buzz in the air Mm -hmm. or someone will say, Oh, I saw you worked with so-and-so brand. Like you guys must be crushing it. you know, even a small comment like that, um, it really does go to show the perception that can build um, yeah. through some of these partnerships. So um, I don't think I answered your question or gave no. any good advice. You t- on no, you did. I actually,
1: on, on no, you did. But I actually just named the, you know, I wait until the end of the discussion to like name, like the podcast episode. Yeah. Um, so you gave me the name oh, and I love of that. It. Yeah. Gosh. I'll save it for later just Great. in case I, I change it. <laughs> um, okay. Last question. You know, you're talking to, I don't know, a couple thousand founders, people who are thinking about being founders, people, you know, who just work at CPG companies, I would imagine more on the brand and marketing side. Although I have gotten some emails from ops people, which has been surprising and wonderful um what do you want them to know that you wish you had known what what are your big red flags and your big don't be scared of this you know surprises
2: Oh, such a good question um you know i think and I don't have a well thought out like soundbite for this. So I, I'm going to apologize okay. in advance if I bounce around. But, um, you know, I, I think the the one thing that I would say, you know, sort of wish I had known or just frankly, something that was just so important for me in transitioning from that idea phase into starting to actually execute and starting to actually like put a pen to paper on starting this business is just having people around you that are encouraging you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that sounds so mundane, but like no. you really should find at least one, if you can find two or three or four people in your life that are cheerleaders, the reality of starting a business is that it is, there's a lot of reasons why you shouldn't start one to your point, Mm -hmm. you know, I think we all know the numbers of, you know, how many businesses succeed versus fail. But the reality is that if you actually start moving, I mean, the only way to succeed is to start moving, right? right? And also the sooner you start moving, If it is gonna fail, the sooner you'll fail, and then the sooner, and then the sooner you'll gather so many more lessons and so many more learnings to try it again, or that's gonna push you into whatever the next chapter of your career or your life is. Um, But just having those people around you that are really um, supporting you. For me, it was a couple of founders that were like a few steps ahead of me in their Mm -hmm. journeys, Um, and then like a, a handful of friends who, you know, probably some of them were also founders. Um, and, and just people that were really there saying like, this is a good idea, keep going, you know, you ran into this hurdle Mm -hmm. here, you know, I can help you solve it. You know, you're smart enough to, and solutions oriented enough to solve it. Like, don't let this kind of crush your, derail you, your derail. Exactly. Um, so I think that would be one. And, uh, you know, the other one, and this is just very like specific and tactical, but I feel like this is something that comes up with every single pre-launch founder that I talk to is. Just don't get tied to the timelines. Mm -hmm. And I, like, I need to, like, somebody should be telling me I told you so because I was totally (laughs) that, like, you know, came out the gate, had the idea, we had developed the product, everything was moving really great and really quickly and in such a positive direction. Um, And then, and I was always like, well, we're going to do this faster because mm-hmm. we're, you know, I don't know. We, I, I don't know
1: why I yeah. thought that we were just going to be like, an entrepreneur and that's yeah, how we all think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
2: and I was like, yeah, like, you know, the, the, the forces that have impacted every food, founder in
1: the past are never going to impact me they're not
2: going to impact me like look at look at my timeline my timeline is very clear and I wrote everything in a spreadsheet so (laughs) there's no way that any of this is going to get delayed and I think like just honestly it's more of an I mean I would say there's two things obviously one of it is one of them is financial like you need to make sure that you do give yourself enough runway if you think okay I have you know um I have two months of, of savings I'm going to live on. And it's going to take me two months to launch the business. I would right. just say like, have some cushion in there.
1: Yeah, um, and you
2: know, obviously having some time pressure and having some financial pressure sometimes can help people depending on your personality. But so one side of it is financial, but honestly, the second is emotional. Like I yep. think when you, a lot of us, we set that launch date, especially once we, you know, our manufacturer has said they're going to deliver on X, Y, Z date and you're You know, your branding partner, your designer, uh, design firm has said that the packaging will be delivered on this date and whatever. Then you get, then you set that launch date and you get very wedded to it. Yeah. And it, like, I I just want, I mean, for us, that launch date just pushed so many times. Of course, COVID had a big impact, but, you know, I admittedly, even if it wasn't for COVID, we would have, there would have been delays regardless. And so just keeping it a little fluid, just even emotionally understanding that you know, uh, here's our tentative launch date, but, um, you, you really don't launch until the day you launch. And I can say like, you know, we, we push so many times and then it's a week before and then you push another week and then mm-hmm. it's three days before the new date and you have to push another day. So it's, you know, it's, um, and, and the, you know, you have to remember like no one knows the dates that you've right. set internally and that you've know. set in your mind. So it, it feels like a much bigger deal, frankly, than it really is. As, as long as you have kind of pre-prepared from, Um, I think like a financial perspective and, um, and that you set things up in a way where like, don't have something happening on the launch date. That's going to cost you, you know, a ton of money if you push by a day, like that's another thing I would just keep in mind. But, um, yeah, Yeah. I I think maybe those would be the two things.
1: Super, super helpful. And I love that one was like macro and one was micro. Um, all right. Where, so people can find you at, I believe it's eat, behave. Yeah. Yeah, we're, um, exactly right. And on Instagram, um, Mesa, thank you so much for coming. I'm so excited for you. Uh, I'm just a fan and I think everything that you're doing is really, really cool. Amanda, thank you for engineering as always. And, um, I'm really excited for my guest next week. Um, his name is LaShawn and he works, uh, at Kroger and he's the, um, I guess I, he, he helps as a liaison between women and, you know, for lack of a better word, minority-owned brands trying to break into the Kroger ecosystem. And um, it's, you know, they have 11 million customers a day. So he's he's doing really good work and I'm really excited to have him on. So um, thank you again, Mesa. And um, thank you guys for listening. And I'll be back next week with another episode of End the Sauce.